Welcome in. It's another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Always great to have you with us. Alongside Chris Dorch, I'm Kevin Ingram. And the four greatest days, Chris, of college basketball are complete. We have a sweet 16 filled with surprises as we've seen the uh, first four days of the NCAA tournament, the first and second rounds. And uh, I guess some people would say they disappointed. But if you're just a fan and you're just watching games, it never disappoints, does it? Oh, dude, uh, my bracket was uh, bloodied and battered by midway Thursday, but I could care less. I was super happy about the way things turned out. It never disappoints. And one thing, this, without a doubt, this finally, after I don't know how many years of filling out brackets, this finally made me realize I will never, ever, in in no way, win a bracket contest because there's no way in a million years I would pick Fairleigh Dickinson to beat Purdue. I just would not do that. There's no way I'd ever do it. It, if you look at all the numbers and the stats and the size differential, and it just defies all logic. But but then again, uh, whoever accused uh, the NCAA tournament of being logical? <laughs> so yeah, it was great. I was, you know, I haven't gone to, to the tournament in a couple of years. I think COVID kind of got me out of the habit. But uh, I have done what I think is, is is just as cool. I mean, I watched. 48 hours of basketball. I mean, from from midnight, from noon to midnight, all four days. And I watched all or parts of every game. And you really get a sense for what's going on there. And it, it just, I mean, I'm biased, of course. I've made my living covering college basketball. But this is the greatest sporting event to me, bar none, because it, it you know, it captivates an entire country. Uh, it involves even the smallest of towns who might have a school in it. There are so many uh, bets and brackets placed. I'm getting crushed in, in my bracket for my students. Uh, I'm going to put it in my PowerPoint uh, tomorrow during the lecture, and I'm going to I'm gonna say, and here's our bracket, then I'm going to click real quick. Like, <laughs> and moving right along like here. Two seconds of it, yeah. <laughs> moving along. Uh, yeah, there's a girl that, that's, that has no – she likes sports, but I don't think she follows college basketball. She is crushing the field in our class. So it just, it's March Madness, man. Yeah, it's crazy to see how some of this stuff plays out. And uh, coming up a little bit later, by the way, we're going to have Dane Bradshaw with us from the SEC Network. Uh, Southeastern Conference is looking good, has three of the Sweet 16, and we'll talk about those teams and their prospects for going even deeper in the tournament. Also, a little bit later, we'll uh, check out what's going on with the Mandalorian and a side story that uh, brought a lot of criticism uh, involving the not-so-good doctor. So we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. And and a comeback for the ages at Memorial Gym on Saturday that I was a part of uh in the national invitation tournament so we more memorial magic oh my goodness that that was memorial magic uh it looked like vanderbilt was toast with about a minute to go and down by eight but uh the commodores yada 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 move on to play again against uab on wednesday so we'll we'll get to that kevin's quest for vegas yeah that's right uh might be on the way to vegas next week uh, the most impressive teams, Chris, I thought played in the same building in Birmingham. Alabama blew out a good Maryland team, and, and Houston, uh, they just blew the doors off Auburn in the second half of that game after it was close. And there was a lot of talk about Auburn basically playing a home game, which they had certainly the the, the fan advantage in that game against Houston, but Houston had the uh, team advantage. 
Houston would look to have a much tougher road to play in the final four in their hometown Alabama looks like they have a, a great path to finally get there you look at what's ahead for them they'll play San Diego State in Louisville uh, on Friday and then the winner of Princeton and Creighton uh, for Houston they'll play Miami which will be a tough out that's a really good team those games are in Kansas City and then the winner of that would play either Xavier or Texas so neither one of those games are, are going to be easy for Houston but uh, I thought both those teams just looked like the best of the field of what we saw so far yeah, and what's crazy is both of them, their best player was battling injury. Marcus Sasser was hurt. I, I think it was, was it a groin injury for him? And Brandon Miller, same injury. And Brandon Miller didn't score in, in Alabama's first round uh, victory for the first time all season. He came back with 19 in the second round. Marcus Sasser is a trooper. That's all I can say. And Houston is the ultimate blue-collar team. If you want to beat them, you're going to have to out-rebound them, which hardly anybody does. They're going to crash the offensive glass. They're going to guard you. And they're just, you know, they're older. They're experienced. Uh, they, they've played some freshmen here the last couple of years. Uh, but usually they do it with guys that have transferred or come from JUCO or whatever. They're just a blue-collar, lunch-pail bunch. And it's fun to watch them play. And I'm really glad uh, that Kelvin Sampson kind of rehabilitated his career if you look at what they got him for, the, the stuff seems so relatively minor compared to what they didn't get some coaches for here uh, in recent years. So good to see him rehabilitate his career. And, and uh, he, he's an excellent coach. People need to start thinking about him as one of the all-time best. He is an excellent coach. He's taken a couple teams to the Final Four, uh, did it with Oklahoma, and has already done it with Houston, and, and maybe back there next weekend by the time uh, this is all done. But yeah, I, I've always thought well. that guy was a, a terrific coach, and they look like a team that has a chance to to get to the Final Four in their hometown, and, and with, with Jim Nance on the call and everything else. But uh, we'll, we'll yeah, who we'll, went there? Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll save that for if they indeed do make it. Let's go back and talk about the the first round, and then we'll move on and really talk about what happened over the weekend. First round upsets on Thursday, early on, one of the very first games, he had number 13 seed Furman beating number four Virginia 68-67 on a three-pointer by Nashville's J.P. Pegues. You had the number 15 seed Princeton really busting up a lot of brackets with their upset of Arizona, the number two seed 59-55. And then Princeton proceeded to take out Missouri in the following game 78-63. He had a good Penn State team beating Texas A&M 76-59. On Friday, you had Kennesaw State of 14. They gave Xavier all they wanted, 72-67. The Owls were ahead for a whole lot of that game. Uh, Double-digit seed Pittsburgh, they beat Iowa State 59-41. Fairly Dickinson, which really has become one of the stories of the tournament. The the second 16-seed win over a number one seed in the history of the tournament, beating Purdue 63-58. and we could talk about this in a moment. Fairly Dickinson was a better team than probably what we saw with, with Maryland Baltimore County when they beat Virginia a few years ago. And then uh, number nine seed FAU beat Memphis in one of the late games on Friday, 66-65, in a game that I felt like was just a total meltdown by the Tigers at the end. But, Chris, there was a lot to unpack just in those first two days of this tournament. There really was. Uh yeah, we'll talk about FDU in a minute. But to me, the crazy thing, uh, maybe the craziest uh, that resulted in the Sweet 16 pairings, but what Princeton did. Generally, you would think, you know, Princeton offense shoots a lot of threes, stuff like that. Backdoor plays. But against against Arizona, they shot 16% from three, but they had 42 points in the paint and 11 second chance points to just 34 and two for a much 
taller, athletic Arizona lineup. Uh, and then in the second game, they did the same thing to Mizzou. They dominated them in second-chance points, 19 to just two for Mizzou. So I look it up on Ken Palm. They're seventh in the country uh, in defensive rebound percentage, uh, 22.7%. So that means they're keeping – they are keeping uh, their opponent off the offensive glass, which you wouldn't think. Usually these upstart teams, you think, well, they just got hot from three and yeah. blew somebody out. Now, they did shoot well against uh, Mizzou uh, from from three in the second game. I'll tell you, I, and we'll talk about this more with, with uh, Dane, but I just can't believe Mizzou and, and Texas A&M. I thought those two teams, and mm-hmm. I know we, we talked about it, were capable of deep runs. But, yeah, Princeton, I think it's the real surprise of this tournament. Obviously, FDU's uh, upset, Furman's upset were, were surprising. What was surprising about that Furman game is Clark, the fifth-year UVA point guard, makes a crazy turnover. He gets trapped and just kind of throws it up for grabs, and then a 6'9 guy for Furman grabs it and alertly sees Pegues, who's wide open. And Man, he he hadn't shot it well that day. I think he was one for seven, but he said, I'm letting this baby fly. And, you know, that's, that's what March is made of, man. Yeah, that was a heck of a shot. Yeah, like I said, he's from uh, Nashville. He played over at Hillsboro. I mean, it was all strings on that one. It's just a crazy play, and it's hard to understand that decision by a veteran player for Virginia who'd really had a, a good game and made some big plays. Uh, we move on to the second round. On Saturday, you saw Arkansas beat uh, the number one seed and defending national champion Kansas 72-71 in one of the more intense games, I, I thought, of the tournament. Uh, Arkansas the athleticism and length and you know defensive ability and all those things for those guys and, and ability to get out and play in transition is something to watch when they're playing well they're really really tough uh eric yep. Musselman, keep your shirt on by the way interesting scene. Like, no no don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> yeah you kind of knew it was coming was in front of his wife and daughter so i yeah. guess he felt yeah, I guess comfortable it, but you, you know what <laughs> if you can't get choked up over that interview post game with Devo Davis yeah. the star of the game Absolutely. crying you ain't breathing baby yep. I mean that gets me every time I watch it yeah I um, saw that when it know, happened too and I, I was the same way and, and really it was a really nice moment with, with Musselman and, and Devo who was the sideline reporter was it Jamie Erdahl or I forget who it was but she did a great job by by saying you know why the tears and he just said man we've just overcome so much and They've battled injuries about as much as any team in the country, and yet still here they are. Eric Musselman is a flat-out tournament coach. I've known that ever since 2018 when in Nashville. I think you and yep. I saw it together. Sure did. When they came back from 14 in the second half to beat Texas in the first round and 22 uh, to beat Cincinnati when he was at Nevada, I thought, this cat, this cat is a never-say-die guy. I mean, his guys will go through a brick wall for him. And, you know, if you see the post-game locker rooms and what he did taking his shirt off, he just just gets his kids fired up, man. And I I think that's more than half the battle. Get your kids fired up and engaged. And he's already taken Arkansas to a couple deep runs in the tournament and they're doing it again this year. Uh, You had Tennessee, the four seed. uh, Really, they beat up Duke uh, 65-52. And the Blue Devils were one of the hottest teams coming into this tournament and a popular pick by a lot of folks to go to the Final Four. They were playing well. They'd won the ACC tournament. 
And Tennessee, I didn't feel like they really played all that well in that first game against Louisiana. And, boy, they they played great against Duke. And it felt like Rick Barnes, who I know is a, is a very good friend of yours, he shook off some bad tournament feelings with that win. And the door looks open for the balls to break through and get to that first Final Four in school history. You know, I keep telling people that you can't judge a coach necessarily by NCAA tournament success or, or perceived lack thereof. Sometimes it takes luck. And some of that luck involves some lower seeds doing some of the heavy lifting for you. Mm-hmm. FDU knocks out Purdue, and then all of a sudden it's a different ball game. Uh, FAU beats Memphis, which I think, you know, no love lost between Penny Hardaway and and, and Rick Barnes, uh, does Tennessee a favor. But then Tennessee did what it had to do, and I think it's funny. Uh, a national audience probably saw Tennessee at its best, maybe for the first time all season, although we know they, they had a collection of huge wins all year which spoke to this kind of possibility. But I thought it was funny, uh, people in Twitter and some of the national experts almost accusing them of being dirty and playing uh, uh, hockey-type goons and stuff. But that's just the way they play. Uh, Rick Barnes says, we're going to make them feel you and and bring them down in the mud. And, you know, Euros Flopsich, the big guy, got called for a couple of fouls early on, but he never raised his, his arm above his elbow. They just play tough and physical. And uh, Fran Fraschilla said it best He, in a tweet praising what he called his mentor, Rick Barnes. He said it, it reminded him of, of Providence in the Big East days <laughs> where the motto was, no autopsy, no fall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there have been a lot of teams like that over the years that, uh, that oh, have man. played that way. They'll play FAU uh, in New York City on Thursday. And it's got to be bittersweet for Sakai Ziegler, who's a New York guy. Uh, yeah. And his teammates were talking about pick, you know, lifting him up and, and taking him back to his hometown to play in the regional. Uh, if they can get past FAU, they play either Michigan State or, or Kansas State for a trip to the Final Four. Uh, speaking of Kansas State, and another of the more intense games of the tournament, I, and I thought maybe the best game oh, of them yeah. all so far, uh, they beat Kentucky 75-69 yesterday. Marquise Noel scored 27 points. He had nine assists. Kansas State did not shoot it well from three for most of the day, but when they needed to, they made some just monster three-pointers, including the one by Keontae Johnson. And for Kentucky, Antonio Reeves, he's had a terrific season, but it was the wrong day for him to really have a bad game. He was one of ten from three, yeah. and the one he made was really when the game was out of reach. Oscar Shibway was just did what he always does, 25 points and 18 rebounds in what will be his last appearance in a Kentucky uniform. But uh, Kansas State, they, they won a thriller, and, and they keep on playing. They were the higher seed, which you wouldn't really necessarily think about that as you know, Kentucky's the traditional power, and Kansas State's had right. its moments. But uh, Kansas State's a really good team, and, and they've done a good job and uh, they'll have a chance to uh, play against a Michigan State team that, that does what Michigan State always does in the tournament, and they beat Marquette yesterday, does. 69-60. I, I'll tell you what, if Jerome Tang doesn't get National Coach of the Year, they should just kick the award out and, and don't give it out anymore. Uh, he inherited a scorched earth program from Bruce Weber. He talked Mar- Marquise Noel in, into staying. There was a great quote from, from him after last night's game. He says, I went to lunch one day and I said, peace. I'm going to do everything in my power to put a team together to get to the NCAA tournament. He said, Coach, I don't care if we have five dudes. We're getting there because Kimball Walker won a national championship with, I think, three freshmen and two sophomores. So, Noel, this is crazy what he's done. In the two games to get him to the Sweet 16, he combined for 44 points and 23 assists 
Uh, that hasn't been done. Only two players since 90. The other one was Murray State's John Morant, who had 40 and 20 to get to the Sweet Six. Murray State to get to the Sweet 16 a couple of years ago. But Noel's like 5'8". He's, he's, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I have a vote on the Koozie Award for the best point guard. I think he won my you, – you go one, two, you, you vote – Five two three five four three two one. Yeah, I think he just got my fifth vote. I saw a comparison by Pat Forty yesterday to a guy that I saw play when I was in college, and that's Mark Bell, who played at Western Kentucky. He said Marquise Noel reminded him of Mark Bell, who was kind of the same yeah. same height. Uh, Mark Bell was he was a little stockier. But same sort of yeah. player, just fearless. He would drive. It seemed like he never got his shot blocked. He distributed, and he played on a Western Kentucky team that my senior year made it to the Sweet 16 uh, by beating first Memphis State in, in a 7-10 matchup in the first round and then knocking out the number two seed in, in that regional Seton Hall. And that was a, a really good team that had Terry DeHare back then and, and, and Danny Hurley. Yeah. And then they went on to play Florida State and, and lost in overtime uh, with the chance to play Kentucky for a trip to the Final Four. But I, I thought that was a really interesting comparison, and, and I, I wouldn't have thought of that one, but but it was really cool that Pat Forty brought up Mark Bell. Because yeah. That brought up a lot of memories for me, and I, I saw him play in high school. He played with, on the same team with Allen Houston at, at Ballard High School in Louisville. At Louisville Ballard. Yeah, and yeah. you know and they won a state championship. I, I saw him win the state championship in 1988, so I, I thought that was you a fun, fun comparison. You know who he reminds me of? Who's that? He reminds me of Zakai Ziegler. And it's a real shame the kid got hurt because they could conceivably play in in Madison Square Garden. Yep. So that would have been a great matchup uh, to see which one of those came out on top if they played. I mean, Tennessee still has to beat a good FAU team and sure. Michigan State, which kudos to Tom Izzo. I, I think he's he's one of my all-time favorites. He's, he's just the best dude, and, and he's had such a great, great career. I He's won one, which was all the way back in 2000. But he's been now to 25 straight NCAAs, and they've been to 15 Sweet 16s. So uh, a little shout-out to Izzo there. Yeah, and, and numerous Final Fours, too. Just one of the all-time great tournament coaches. Uh, and, and people look at it and say, well, he's only won one championship. But to me, if you get to the Final Four, you can call the whole thing a success, even if you don't win it. That's one more than most. That's buddy. exactly one more right. Than most. Uh, you had Creighton knocking out Baylor. FAU ended FDU's run seventy eight seventy. That was a really good game. Gonzaga makes its eighth consecutive Sweet Sixteen. They beat TCU eighty four eighty one. Drew Timmy, who feels like he's played more college basketball than anybody in history, twenty eight points, eight rebounds, and one f bomb in the post game interview. But yeah, re- just remarkable consistency for Mark Few's program. See how he does that. He, he's working blue, man. <laughs> he was like working blue. <laughs> he's working blue in the post game with, with Andy Katz, which I think he feels comfortable with Andy, and and uh, but he lets it fly, and he, he, there was not even a, a smirk on his face. He he knew what he was doing. Yeah, I mean that's just the way he talked, but. Uh, I, I was shocked. I was like, did he just say that? <laughs> yes, he did. Oh, I, I knew right as soon as I saw it. I was like, oh, man, I, I think he just said what I think he did. Working blue. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my God. He could be doing a stand-up routine in L.A. Yep, no doubt about it. Chris, our guest this week is a guy who's just terrific on TV. He was an outstanding player, too, at Tennessee. But now uh, part of the SEC Network is a basketball analyst. He is Dane Bradshaw. Dane, welcome in, man. Hey, guys. Great to talk with you. DB, I, I, we had to get you on because most of your work this year has is, is come work in the SEC. And the first question I want to ask you is about your alma mater. 
this was probably the first time before a national audience, even though Tennessee had racked up some really good wins, that the world at large got to see how Tennessee plays. And a bunch of people were talking about how dirty they were and, and, and stuff. And uh, Dusty May, the FAU coach, uh, his final quote uh, last night after he left the interview room, he said, we're going to have to study Australian rugby rules and get ready for the balls. Now, I think that's kind of a bad rap. What, what do you think? You saw them play a lot, and I know I, you do a great job of not being biased when you cover the balls. by the way. So I just wanted to ask you about that. I, I texted Jimmy Dykes the same thing. I don't think they're dirty. I think, I think they play a tough brand of basketball. Get used to it. What do you think? Um, I think there's one exception. I, I do think Uros Plavsic has earned a reputation <laughs> as, as a dirty player. He's yeah. thrown some bows. He's been caught throwing them. Rick yep. Barnes has told him he's got to cut that stuff out. He's gotten technicals. Yep. He, he's done some of that. So there, there is, um, there is a you know a Bill Lambeer personality on that team <laughs> that that can kind of dilute the otherwise physical, clean play that the other guys do. And so Good I point. think that you know when you got the big Serbian kid out there throwing bows. Yeah. that becomes the image of their defense when I don't really think that's the reality. You know, he, he's an right. exception. Everything else is is very physical play. Um, I, I've had the benefit of going to a lot of shoot-arounds, um, a lot of coaches across the league that all respect Rick Barnes. They respect Tennessee. But they do say, man, they put, your hand, they put their hands on you. And a big yeah. part of the game is how the refs are going to call it. And right. look. They used to say the same thing about Duke and Coach K, like, you know, hey, they can't call them all, you know, and so let's just keep going at them. So that's it, – it's fair. And um, and I do think, uh, you know, at times where you've seen earlier in the season where Tennessee was struggling some, they were getting in a lot of foul trouble, whether it was right. Ziegler or others, where it was getting called tighter. And so, yeah, it's I – th I think it can hurt them some, that physical play, depending on how the whistle's blowing that day. And so I – I don't think they're a dirty team. Do I think that um, the more the refs let you play, is that favor Tennessee? Absolutely. I think that's a fair statement. You know, they're just a more physical, more physical team. Uh, Olivier Kamwa wasn't throwing elbows to go 10 for 10 on contested jumpers. You know, <laughs> that's exactly right. Were you surprised that they were able to sort of handle Duke, especially Duke had won 10 in a row and were a lot of people's pick to get to the final four? Yeah, um, I, I thought, look, Tennessee didn't apologize to anybody. And sometimes in March, you, you got to get a few breaks go your way. And right. I think as sad as it's been for Tennessee to have these injuries that they've tried to overcome, and that was part of their struggles in February, and then you get that monster blow with Ziegler. Well, now you enter March, and, and guess what? A, a few things go your way, right? And right. You know, they're, they're off shooting night. We know about their Jekyll and Hyde offense. Well, good news was it came against Louisiana where you could afford to be off and still win. Anybody else, yep. you, you go out in the first round. Um, game two against Duke. Duke was always at their best. Where they got their chemistry was when they had that same starting five. I think they were undefeated. And then Mitchell gets hurt in, in practice the day before. And, yep. man, you, you just it, for Duke, it's a what might have been type thing. And then here we are. Everybody thought at best you're, you're playing Purdue to go to the Elite Eight, and it's, it's Florida Atlantic, which is a very good team. But, you know, Fairleigh Dickinson beat, beats Purdue. And so this is one of those where, as a ten Tennessee fan, maybe you went a little bit further than you thought you would, given the way the season ended. However, you can't help but get greedy to think, man, 
this is one of those years you just got to take advantage of the bracket kind of breaking your way. It, it does take that. Somebody like a lower seed does the heavy I mean, lifting. Who did, and- you, you guys were me. Tennessee went to the lead eight, um, and there was an upset. There was a Georgetown that lost, and they, they ended up not having that hard of a game to go to the Sweet 16 where they beat Ohio State. But there was an upset. That was not Bruce Pearl's best team that went to the lead eight. Yeah, sometimes the toughest games are the ones that, that you don't have to play. As far as Alabama, the path seems clear for them to finally get there, too, and maybe win it all. Their brackets opened up a bit with, with some upsets, and most notably Arizona getting knocked out in the first round. I, I thought they were – them and Houston, I thought, were the two most impressive teams I saw on the first weekend. What did you think about Alabama's performance in Birmingham? Well, what I like about it is that Brandon Miller, look, yes, he's the star, SEC player of the year, SEC freshman of the year, tournament MVP, you name it. But, you know, it's not as if if one of their stars is off that they can't win the game. I mean, Javon Quinterly all of a sudden can go off for 20 points. Um, or let's say Quinterly's off. And now all of a sudden that's okay because Miller and others are on. They just got, they got so many different people out there that can make shots. And they're at their best when they're connecting um, on most of their three-point attempts or at a high percentage. But – that, that they've proven that they can still win games even when they're not doing that. And so I think the biggest difference in this year's team and last year's is one, Brandon Miller, but yeah. two, uh, their defense is so much more of a complimentary piece. Last year, that was that was as big of an issue as anything. Yeah, they weren't shooting the three well last year for Nate Oates, but it was because they, they couldn't get any of that transition type three. I mean, Brandon Miller had the play of the game where it goes and blocks the guy's shot, right, and it leads to him being on an open three. Mm-hmm. A year ago, they were getting it out of the net and trying to push the tempo. You know, now they're they're getting it off turnovers and steals and and rebounds. As far as Arkansas, I always say there might not be another team in the SEC that's more a reflection of their coach than they are with Eric Musselman. They're, they're so athletic, and they took out the champs, Kansas, uh, back on Saturday. But how has Musselman become such a good tournament coach? To me, I, I think you got to point out his NBA and, and G League, all that stuff where it's short turnarounds, so much attention is on uh, personnel. I asked him this year, and, and I think most coaches would answer the same. Like, hey, if somebody said you can only prepare your team for either the other team's personnel or the other team's plays, which one are you picking? And he said, oh, personnel all day long. And, and that's that's, you know, it's not that they don't pay attention to the other team's plays, but it's more about like, Hey, does this guy go left or right? And where's he get eighty percent of his points? Is it on the left block or right block? And all those things that they're they're all so in tune. And if they get a switch, everybody knows. All right, I'm now guarding a shooter. You can't help off all those things. And so um, I think he does a terrific job there. And he does it in a way I've, I've gotten to see them the way they do film. Everybody has their own, but but it's really short. It's short and sweet, but it, it's high level stuff. I mean, it's. It, it's reading the cliff notes uh, of, of the book instead of, you know, losing their attention and reading the entire thing. And so that they, they're always prepared. And, uh, man, when they're playing bad, you start questioning everything. And then when they're playing good, it's like you don't see them ever losing again. And that's just kind of the way they've been. And fortunately for the Razorback fans, they've, they've usually been the front runner in March. Dane, you played three of your uh, four years for a great motivator. Eric Musselman, you know, the taking his shirt off, the crazy dances and the, the Twitter posts and stuff. How much does that help motivate a team? It, it just seems like he's the ultimate players coach and 
he'll do anything to get the fans and his kids fired up. Well, yeah, look, I, and there's critics out there that say, man, this guy's a self-promoter. It's all about him, this and that. I disagree with that. Yeah, and, and look, if that was all it was about, his guys want to play as hard as they do. And Devo Davis wouldn't be crying at the end of the presser and saying, great, yeah. saying, I love you too, coach. Like, yeah. So, you know, if, and maybe he does some, look, he'll even tell you, I think he's calmed down on the Twitter stuff, but he used to be the, the corniest coach on Twitter out there. But it was all about, hey, <laughs> I'm doing this to promote the program. He actually, right. he used to do some stuff. Uh, he he used to try to copy some things from, from Ray Mears with the warm ups and stuff with the circus. Yeah, exactly. Thing. So he, he, like he gets the marketing stuff. He takes his shirt off to see how many people are going to react to that. Like they, they want to be one of the top Twitter follows all those things. And so it's his way of doing it. But if it was only that and the players thought it was only about him, you want to see them as good of a team. So there, there's obviously a balance there that he's aware of and it's not impacting the locker room. What do you think the ceiling should have been for Kentucky with Antonio Reeves just having a bad day at the wrong time against Kansas State and Noel just driving and they hit some big threes as well? Was that about as good as that team could have done, or did you feel like they had a big run in them? I thought they might be able to go to the Sweet 16. I didn't have them beyond just because to play well for more than two games in a row, I just I didn't see Kentucky being capable of being at the top of their game for, for that long stretch. That they've they've had such a roller coaster year that I knew they had a couple good games in them, but would they have a few? And I just Antonio Reeves, they would not be in the NCAA tournament without that kid. And I'm just sick for him that he has that sort of shooting performance on, on that sort of day. And but it does, you know. And now at halftime, I thought I said, man, I like best point guard for Kansas State over best big man for Kentucky. Mm-hmm. You got to give credit to Casey Wallace, though, because he started trying to insert himself into that conversation. Of, Wait a minute, the best point guard on the floor might be for Kentucky, uh, but at the end of the day, it, it was the you know it, it was Noel that was able to penetrate, make those big shots, and look, Kansas State had a lid on the rim for them almost the entire game, but in the last couple of minutes, they got it off, and Kentucky just didn't. What do you think? So, so many fans in Big Blue Nation are, are up, you know going crazy wondering wow did, did we make a mistake giving cal a lifetime contract some people think the game has passed him by you know he's done it with one and dones and now he's done it with transfers uh what do you think is it just the constant state of flux with personnel that that maybe he doesn't have like a veteran team that's played together or yeah well a, a few things um you could see pretty early in this year they weren't just going to out talent teams. And so that makes up, you know, for a lot of whether it's coaching mistakes um, or even like, you know, they get beat on ball screens and a lot of teams get beat on some ball screen stuff, but then they have some rim protector that comes over and blocks a shot, you know, whether that's, um, you know, we saw Brandon Miller, I mentioned with the chase down block, um, you know, Jonas Adu for Tennessee come over. He's going to come block one and be a cleanup type guy. And they, you know, Toppin was a little bit of that, but not great. And they just, one of the things that was a point of emphasis for Cal in the offseason was he looked back on all his most successful teams and they had great rim protection. But right. they couldn't ever get there this year because Onyenso wasn't ready offensively. Collins wasn't ready offensively. Shibwe, yeah, he had his his uh, negatives on the defensive end, but 
you know, how do you take a guy out that's giving you 20 and 20? So yeah. it was, yeah. I, I do think there were some things that, uh, it, it's not broken. There, there's, there's some holes that they need to fill. Um, and, but you know, it's, it's gotten, you know, but when guy when, when the John wall type players are no longer coming to go into Kentucky, they might be going G league or other places. Then all of a sudden you have a top recruiting class, but how dominant is that recruiting class still? And so, uh, a lot will be, um, uh, a lot will be on the line for next year's recruiting class. A lot of pressure there too. Well, the one big coaching change, uh, I hated to see Kermit Davis go wasn't quite sure how he didn't get it done down there, except that I theorized maybe that his brand of hard-nosed coaching is kind of on its way out. Mm-hmm. But, man, uh, they hire Chris Beard, and say what you will about his troubles at Texas. Um, that was a big-time hire. What do you think about that? And, wow, uh, the SEC already got eight teams in and was a meat grinder all season, as you saw, traveling through the league. What do you think about that hire? Yeah, I think if you're Ole Miss, you can do a couple of things. Not saying Dusty May would have taken that job necessarily, but you know the safer, more politically correct hire is Dusty sure. May. If you're a program that's historically in the bottom of the SEC or any conference, if you want a big name, then you're going to have to take a big name that's got some extra baggage, and that's what Ole Miss chose to do. And, and it's just as simple as that. And he's a proven winner as a coach. Um, and look, they, you know, Lane Kiffin didn't have the same circumstances around him, but he still had, you know, a, a, an iffy reputation and Ole Miss says, Hey, look at that worked Okay. With football. And we're going to do it again here with basketball. Uh, because, uh, you know, if, if it wasn't Ole Miss, you know, he's also going to be, and it's just up to the AD and the chancellor and everybody else that approves it. Cause Chris Beard was going to be coaching somewhere. He's either going to be coaching for you or against you. So somebody was going to give him a second chance because, and it's no different than in football. If a guy gets a domestic violence dispute, they say, all right, well, does he have any good years left on him or is it not worth the risk? And so that's just part of the business. And, um, and I am, uh, you know, just from an X's and O's standpoint, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to covering that team. I only covered them once in the big 12 challenge when he was at Texas tech and, uh, one of, one of the best shoot arounds and practices I've ever been to. Wow. Dan, before we let you go, uh, just kind of a big picture question about these upsets and things you see. There's always the other end of that, the team that's a number one or number two seed that's going home after one game. How much is that sort of a reminder of just the ridiculous harshness of the NCAA tournament? And you think about all the recruiting, all the months of hard work to get to that spot where you get that high seed and it all just goes up in smoke in two hours or, you know, in some cases, a matter of seconds and go all the way back and start from scratch again. I, I always sort of put myself in the shoes of those teams on, on the other end of those upsets. Yeah, Kevin, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm actually one that doesn't cheer for the Cinderella as much as the next person. I'm just I'm too heartbroken. <laughs> like, because look, losing hurts more than winning feels good. And you know, I think about those guys at Purdue who have put in the work, have had such a successful career, and all of a sudden their legacy in ten years from now, it's going to be. Oh, so what years were you there? Wait, was that the Fairleigh Dickinson year? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was and so <laughs> despite all the great moments that they had, and it can be, you know, uh not washed away. It doesn't take away everything they did, but it, it look, it's the it's the last impression. And so um yeah, look, I, I went out with at the time was the largest blown lead, halftime lead in NCAA history, I believe. And we had a seventeen point lead to Ohio State. 
And there's still people there. Like, so what year was that? 07. I'm like, any chance you remember Greg, o- Greg Oden, Mike Conley, when Tennessee had a 17 point lead? Yeah, that was, that was, like, that's, that's how you got to remind them. And so, yeah, um, yeah it, it stinks for them, but it's, it's certainly part of the heartbreak that uh, you and vulnerability you sign up for. Dane, always great to have you with us. Thanks for the time. We'll catch up with you down the road. Enjoy the rest of the tournament. Anytime, guys. Thanks a lot. Good luck to your doors. That was Dane Bradshaw from the SEC Network. Always terrific. A uh, longtime friend of the show. Always enjoy your visits with Dane. I, I crossed paths with him a bunch of times over the uh, season and seeing him doing uh, different SEC games and at the SEC tournament just a couple weeks ago. So uh, always great to get his perspective. Some coaching moves, Chris. Uh, Rick Pitino, really the big name, uh, reportedly in discussions about going to St. John's from Iona, where he's had a nice run there over the last couple seasons. Sounds like that one's probably going to happen. Yeah, he made a a thinly veiled statement back in the, I forget when it was, in the middle of the season he was asked. And he wasn't sure about leaving, he said, but if it was, you know, the right situation and it, if it was close to home, which he's a New Yorker, he's never lost those hard Oz. Uh, so uh, I, I think he takes St. John's. I, I, it's been a long time since they've been relevant. I mean, really since Lou Carnesecca, they, they've, rarely been relevant they made a string of questionable hires steve lavin chrissy mullen uh mike anderson even just from the standpoint of being way out of his depth uh, uh, in in a place where he never coached or recruited before so yeah that's the best guy they could do and i think that's how he'll end his career he says he wants to coach till he's 80 so we'll see he's only 70 so he's got some time i've got some time chris i'm so proud of our basketball team we play 40 minutes <laughs> 40 minutes. My alma mater, Western Kentucky, uh, hired Steve Lutz, who had a great run at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. And your alma mater, ETSU, uh, has a new coach in Brooks Savage. What can you tell us about those two guys? Steve Lutz uh, has got a great pedigree. Uh, He coached with Greg McDermott at at Creighton for a number of years. And he also coached with Matt Painter at Purdue. And I know right now Purdue fans may not think that's so great, but Matt Painter is one of the best in the business. So, uh, Steve Lutz comes with a uh, great pedigree, and he led that program at Texas A&M Corporate Kirsty to the last two NCAAs. So Western Kentucky's a good job, as you know, and I think he'll do a great job there. I think it was – obviously there's a lot of hires yet to be made, but as people rate them, as the pundits rank them, and I know I will, that'll be among my best. Uh, Brooks Savage at ETSU, I went to school there. I obviously wanted to do well. He's a, he's a friend. Uh, I'm, I'm a little biased because he's a friend. I've known him for several years. He's a really good dude. Uh, I think he's a relentless recruiter. He's young, though, and we'll see how he does with the X's and O's. But he was with that staff that Steve Forbes had when they had five great years together, and he went to Wake with Steve. And Steve Forbes is pretty much the de facto athletic director at ETSU, and I think he had a, a big hand in convincing uh, the higher-ups there, that, that Brooks, despite his youth, could get the job done, and I really hope he does. Another hire that I think was interesting was Georgia Southern. Uh, they hired Charlie Henry off Nate Oates' staff at Alabama. So uh, we'll see if uh, all of a sudden Georgia Southern becomes, you know, uh, threes, twos at the rims, and free throws. So that would be cool to see. Chris, one of the uh, best comebacks I've ever been a part of happened on Saturday. Vanderbilt's been playing in the NIT, and they were playing Michigan in the second round. Uh, early game on Saturday, the Commodores were down eight with less than a minute left, 
and came back to win by one point, 66-65. They scored nine points in 46 seconds, all without ever putting Michigan at the free throw line. The Wolverines turned it over three times against Vanderbilt's press, which the Commodores don't really press a whole lot, but they turned up the heat, and Michigan just melted down and and lost the ball three times. And the the go-ahead bucket was by Tyron Lawrence, who's been playing just at a ridiculous level over this stretch of games and seeing Vanderbilt win 12 out of 14. But uh, he made the winning bucket, ended up uh, with 24 points. Uh, the, the ball on that last layup attempt was blocked up on the backboard, and they called it a goaltend. Michigan had one last chance with, with a few seconds left, and they drove down and looked like they might score a bucket and win the thing. Doug McDaniel had a, had a layup attempt, and they had a, a tip or two, and it fell off. And I, I think Tim Thompson, who calls the games with me, we just kind of sat there and looked at each other like, did we just see what I think we did? Uh, it was just remarkable to watch. And again, you know, you go in to the last minute of play, you're down by eight. And instead, now you're talking about playing UAB on Wednesday for a trip to Las Vegas and the NIT semifinals. Kevin's quest for Vegas. I love it. <laughs> right. have, have you covered a game in Vegas recently? I, I have not. I've been to Vegas several times. I've not done basketball out there, though. So uh, it, it would be at the Orleans Arena. It's going to be Arena. in Orleans Arena, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which just so off the strip. Who, who have you got next? You, you host, right? Yeah, host against UAB. Um, and friend of the show, Andy Kennedy, that, that game will be on yes. Wednesday at 6 o'clock at Memorial. So, yeah, one more to win before I head out to Vegas. I to wasn't play. so busy. I'd go, I'd drive up there and see that yeah, game, but I'll definitely watch it. it. I, I'll tell you, uh, I know last year you were disappointed you didn't get to go to the God for the last year the tournament was there. So, uh, good luck to, to the Vandy boys. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, speaking of the Vandy boys, I did the doubleheader on Saturday. I did the basketball game, which, you know, this crazy finish. <laughs> And then we had it all figured out that once I got done with basketball, to go back, the basketball game started at 11 o'clock Central Time. Baseball game was at 1 o'clock Central Time. And so we we figured it out. We had an extra person uh, helping us in the booth, uh, Rent Wiseman, a former baseball player, along with Andrew Harris, who I, I usually do the games with. And so those yeah. two would start the broadcast, and I would just get there when I got there. So I show up in the, in the middle of the fourth inning, and I get settled in. It's 2 nothing, Ole Miss, and then as soon as I come on the air, Vanderbilt starts scoring runs, and so I, you know, I take full credit <laughs> for it, of course. Uh, Jack Bolger hit a two-run homer over the wall and left, and Vanderbilt ended up going on and, and getting the win in the sweep. So it was a crazy day. It was, it was a lot of fun. champion Ole Miss. Exactly, yeah. Ole Miss, uh, they, yeah. they've had to reload a little bit. They lost seven players to the draft off that team that uh, made the unexpected run to the national championship last year, but they were ranked number three in the country, and uh, Vanderbilt beat them 7-2 to two to get the sweep. And I bet they were never so relieved to color <laughs> Analyst to see, <laughs> oh, I don't know. They, they were holding it down just fine. They, they were doing great. They could have, uh, they could have gotten into the finish line. But I, I joke that it I would got be like me trying to do this podcast yeah, by myself. It's you like would I'm be waiting fine. on Kevin. I can't do it. You would be fine. No, uh, man, you're the traffic cop. All right, let's talk about the uh, the Mandalorian as we wrap this up. Uh, the most recent episode. Yeah. Uh, Mando and Bo-Katan are back in the good graces after purifying themselves in the waters of Lake Mandalore. And then there was a long secondary storyline with Dr. Pershing and the ex-Imperial officer who duped him into trying to steal some gear to to set up his lab. And the doctor ended up getting his mind erased at the end. So uh, a lot to unpack in, in episode three of this newest season. That's out. It's, it's about as much as unpacking those first two rounds of the NCAA. <laughs> right, right. But it, the, the show was kind of like two parts, distinct parts. Uh, there, were, there was a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, I guess that's three parts. But two of the parts involved Bo-Katan and Mando getting away from, uh, you know, the, the usual kamikaze fighting. And, and then they were able to uh, – they were apostates, but they were able to come back into the good graces. Even Bo-Katan, she had her helmet on. 
that's going to mess up her hair, though. I don't know how that's going to happen if, to keep that helmet on. But in in between, there was about 15 minutes or more of, of this Dr. Pershing story. I wasn't a fan of it until I started reading the ultra nerd episode recaps. And really, there's a lot to do with, uh, you know, he, he had given sort of like this TED talk about cloning. And then the next thing you know, he's some flunky in an office, completely miserable. And uh, then he was, of course, he was susceptible to, to being talked out and, uh, you know, being a, a model employee. And, and that's what got him in trouble. I won't mention any more than that. But we're going to see who he was doing his cloning for. If you'll recall, in the first season, he had poor Grogu. They were about to drain the blood out of the little dude, and they wanted to set up some cloning research. And now we'll know eventually who that's for. So I like that a lot more. It's a different sort of Mando. People were comparing it. Oh, the critics were saying, oh, we're, is this Mando trying to be Andor? We don't want this big, long, uh, epic saga. We want the, the you know, the we want action. every week something different. <laughs> yeah, you know. The, the fight of the week type thing, but uh, I'm okay with it. Like I said last week, I trust the showrunners. John Favreau has earned my complete and total trust. I think he's a genius auteur, writer, and, and a reverent Star Wars fan. So he earns my trust, and I can't wait for episode four. All right, we'll break down episode four next week, and we'll have a final four next week, too, uh, when we have our newest edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. You did it again, <laughs> dude. Oh, man. I, I'm so proud of you. Yeah, this is the way. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you next time.